0: This episode is sponsored by a donor to Global Wellness Institute, or GWI. GWI is a 501 C3 nonprofit organization with a mission to empower wellness worldwide by educating the public and private sectors about preventative health and wellness. GWI's research, programs, and initiatives have been instrumental in the growth of the 4.5 trillion US dollar wellness economy and in uniting the health and wellness industries. Visit globalwellnessinstitute.org. On this episode, we have Joni Connell. Joni was born in New York, and her family moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts when she was young. Having walked through Harvard Yard most days on her way to school, Joni chose to study there for her bachelor's degree. After graduating in engineering sciences, she made her way to Silicon Valley and worked in a number of tech companies. After experiencing group dynamics in corporate settings, she chose to pursue a doctorate at UC Berkeley in psychology. After working as a senior human centered engineer at Cisco for a few years, she now holds some academic posts and consults to tech leaders interested in developing more soft skills to transition into successful management roles. She's also a published author, maintains a blog, and hosts a podcast show called Reinventing Nerds. Joni, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here, Asim. You know, I'm, I'm so glad to be a guest.
2: No, it's really wonderful. Um, you've had a very interesting uh, career and I'm uh, excited to share about it with the uh, uh, the audience. Um, can we start? Were you actually born in California? Are you a native?
1: No, no. Okay. I, I, I'm a Boston native. Um, oh. But you know, it's interesting. I was born in New York, but okay. I spent my life, my childhood in Boston and Cambridge, actually, uh, oh. pretty much. Yeah.
2: And you studied at Harvard.
1: Yes. Were yes. your parents I,
2: affiliated with the university?
1: No, a lot of people would ask that, but uh, <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, they were a bit surprised when I said I wanted to go there. They were both mm. like, "Really?" You know, and <laughs> uh, you know, of course, the dollar signs were in their eyeballs. You know, you could sort <laughs> of see that. Uh, but I was, uh, yeah, uh, they have a lot of financial aid, so that worked out. But um, yeah, I went to Cambridge and Latin High School, and I walked through Harvard Yard pretty much every day on the way to school. And it was just beautiful. I, it, it was just such a lovely feeling of walking through, seeing the chestnuts on the ground in the fall, the flowers in the spring, the Widener Library, all these beautiful buildings and all the, the scholarship. And it was my dream. And I worked really hard in high school and, and made that happen.
2: Well, wow, that's great. Well, well done uh realization of a dream like that is it's, it's phenomenal and you were drawn to engineering or engineering sciences is what your degree is in
1: yeah yeah that's true because you know a lot of at the time you know people like why aren't you thinking about mit It's just down the street <laughs> and i was like well uh i want to go to harvard parks like i said it was my dream but I also knew that I, I, wanted a real, I wanted a liberal arts education, okay. you know, a full background, not to say that you can't get that elsewhere, but that, that was something that was more um, important to me at the time because I was really interested in a lot of different things, and I did engineering because that's where my strengths were in math and uh, computers, and it was also a way for me to have a profession after four years.
2: Yeah, And no, at the
1: time, sure. it, it didn't even see like an option to go to graduate school for me. Mm-hmm. It was like, okay, what can I do out of college and be a professional and make a good living and take care of myself? And so that's what drove me to engineering.
2: Okay. Um, yeah. Do you have siblings?
1: Yes, I have one. She's younger, two years younger.
2: All right. Yes. And uh, I'm just curious, growing up, like what were the things that you were drawn to? Maybe there were books you were reading or, or the things that really clued you in that the sciences or engineering were areas that uh, were appealing to you. I mean, you mentioned computers. Mm -hmm. How did that fascination start?
1: Well, this is going to really date me here, but um, computers weren't really around when I was a kid. I mean, maybe at least not in my life. My husband actually had some early computers. I think he had a little bit more disposable income in his house, but I think of like Commodore
2: 64, (laughs) Atari 2, Apple 2C. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah. no, he did. He was a little gamer too, but uh, for me, it was, uh, I had my first opportunity to spend time with computers in school and this was seventh, eighth grade, I think it was. And it's interesting because we didn't have middle school. It was K through eight, K through 12, no K through eight. And then you go to high school for nine through 12, right? And so um, uh, we had a computer class and it was really funny because it was with a printer. I mean, at the time there was no monitor. It would just print it out on the dot matrix printer, you know, when you type something in real slowly. I, I wasn't old enough for punch cards, but it was almost, and we were just, it was so interesting in, in eighth grade. That was my first opportunity. And then in high school, I took every class I could. And it was actually kind of interesting there too, because one of the role models I had Uh, was a woman who was in charge of the computers and uh, and she was also my geometry teacher and she was just wonderful and I really took to it there and and wanted to get involved uh, in college and and I guess program and all that yeah
2: oh that's fantastic well uh, and once you graduated you made your way out to Silicon Valley
1: Yes, immediately. It was so funny. I mean, the pros and cons, okay, of going to school, going to college a mile away from home made me really itching to go away after that.
2: <laughs> of chose one of the farthest locations yes. and still remain in the country. I mean, I suppose there was Alaska, but I don't think the tech job opportunities were as robust. Right.
1: It's so. true. <laughs> and I had pretty much moved out there sight unseen. I, I went there once for an interview. Okay. Um, and I just remember arriving and the flight was delayed and it was really late at night. And I think also being on East coast time, it was like two in the morning, my time, it was probably like 11 or 12. And I, this was also dating me, I flew into the San Jose airport. Okay. And at the time, this was really small airport back at the early stages of Silicon Valley. And we still had to get out on the tarmac. and walk down those steps and the thing that was so just it was so uh it just made me so alive was it was in the middle of the night and it was balmy and I could smell the flowers Mm. and it was just beautiful and I Mm. thought I have to be here I mean everything was so new it was just I mean Boston is beautiful and it's it's, it has its charm in other ways because of its history, oh, but I mean, you know, you're walking on cobblestones, going through <laughs> potholes, and true, and then yeah. you get to Silicon Valley, and it's so nice and pristine, and and I loved it. And I moved out there pretty. I've been there for a day, a couple of days for interviews, and then came back home and got a job offer and moved out.
2: Wow. Fantastic. And, um, well, tell us about some of the experiences you had, uh, while working there. And, and I, because I, what I'd love to for you to build up to is this narrative, which has really informed uh, a lot of what you do in your career is interacting with, um, uh, tech oriented people mm-hmm. and, and kind of the the soft skills. So I'm, I'm hoping that there are some great anecdotes you can share <laughs> about how things went horribly badly.
1: Oh boy. Horribly badly. Well, let's see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I was a design engineer. I was right in the thick of like the the least people-oriented group right. of, of engineers, the most technical people. And it was sort of ironic because I worked in data communications, like mm-hmm. how to get computers to communicate with each other, right. not people. Right. And then later shifted to, to people communications. But back then it was... People yeah, we just really hardly spent any time talking to each other. And I mean think about it in today's world, how often people interact. Back then we had our staff meeting or what they call it, our team meeting, once a month. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just once that's the only time we all got together.
2: Like the bare minimum that right. happened. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. Otherwise we weren't really I mean, I hardly ever saw the manager. And it was clear that he didn't really want to see me either. You know, <laughs> I mean, not that I, he wasn't a great guy or anything. It was just, no, you know, that <laughs> I, don't,
2: I don't have to manage. That's good. I don't want to be here. I don't want to answer yeah. any questions. I don't want to give any guidance. Just, right. just go make stuff happen. <laughs> right.
1: But uh, we get in that room and there were 12 of us total. And there were a few different projects we were working on, but it was, it, it was, you could just feel the tension in the room that nobody wanted to be there. And we would, every time it was like once a month, we'd go around the room and just report on what we're doing. And it was just like one after the other, blurt it out, get it over with, go to the next person, get over with, okay, good, we're done. And then it was like, school's out, the door's are and everyone would be running back to their offices to not have to talk again. Wow. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. Cause I actually was looking forward to the meetings. I was going, you know what, okay. wow, we get to all be together. What's, what's yeah. happening? You know, anything yeah. interesting? And, and I was the only one. And I started realizing increasingly that, you know, I kind of stuck out, uh, stuck out there and it wasn't uh, the norm. Uh, whereas other people were really uh, driven by debugging circuits and staying up to the wee hours of the morning at work, solving problems, I couldn't wait. I mean, it was more like school's out for me at five o'clock or six, whenever we got out, but to go off and have my life. Yeah. And uh started saying, hmm, you know, that um, that that wasn't as much my passion. I mean, other things were interesting, too. I mean, you know, I talk about being on the cusp of all. Uh, email, and uh, tech communication yeah, was yeah, really yeah. new at the time. This is right. back in the late 80s. right? And, I mean, today, it's a real question how people are interacting, how the tech is affecting the way we interact. But back then, it was all just starting. Yeah. And I'll never forget just being curious because I was sitting in my office, and I, I say office because we didn't have tables. It wasn't like common workspaces back oh, then. Were, we actually
2: yeah. no cubicles. I was
1: yeah, no cubicles even. My next job had cubicles, but the first job out of school, we had offices, and I had an office mate, and we got along super well. We were, you know, we were great together. And just one day, I remember sitting at my desk, and an email popped up from him, and I thought, well, this is odd. You know, why didn't he just turn around and say, "Hey, Jody," you know, and ask me the question or whatever? He just emailed me, and I thought, huh, you know, oh. Uh, when you know or like the person in in the office next to me wouldn't bother getting up and walking over you know it was always emailing and i thought this is so interesting and of course you know now i'm at home and my husband will text me from (laughs) downstairs you know (laughs) it's the same thing but it was i was curious about how that was impacting people
2: yeah yeah no it's so true um I don't know what we call that. Is it um, a, a lethargy or is it uh, <laughs> an avoidance? Uh, it's, it's unclear. Sometimes it's, see- it's seems it seemingly expeditious to just send the text, even though someone right. like a like hundred feet away from us. Yeah. Um, or like this is a very narrow interaction. I wish to have. I don't want to <laughs> talk about how your day is going or <laughs> yeah, any other true. problems you have. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: You know it was that's that's funny you mentioned that I because it was it was real eye opening for me because later I spent a year in Germany and in fact, you know are talking about what my passions were at the time when when I was working as an engineer, I spent every minute and dollar you know saving up for Time off to travel internationally because oh, okay. that was what I loved. It was your to passion, do. yeah. Yes, I just the people interactions, going to different cultures, seeing how people do things differently, and understanding there's not one right way. You know, there are multiple ways. And I spent a year in Germany.
2: Whereabouts just, were you in Germany?
1: Uh, I was in which yeah, Saarbrücken, which is on the border of France. Right. Yeah.
2: Um, I was born in Berlin, so oh you know, no, the kidding. Geography yes. pretty well.
1: Oh right, yeah. Uh, I learned German at the time not that I could really speak it at this point anymore because I only spent a year there but uh, it was it was a great experience and and one of the things was i i re- i remember running into some people as I was walking uh, i was teaching English to engineers and others and I lived uh, in Czarbrook and I was walking across the town and I run into somebody I know and we'd had the I mean, I'm saying we had to like, as I'm rolling my eyes, we had to stop and talk. <laughs> and I was thinking, <laughs> I'm running late to my meeting, you know, I'm gonna get, what do I do? So I asked my friend who was there, I said, well, what do you do, uh, what, you know, cause people like to stop and talk for a while. And he said, well, you always leave extra early, like a half hour early to go anywhere in case you run into somebody. And I thought, really? That's so strange. (laughs) You know, I like in Silicon Valley, you would just wave and like, then the person would know, oh, I don't have time to talk. You know, you walk by just be like, hey, and walk and keep going. But there it's like, no, no, that's unacceptable. You have to stop and talk to them and you have to make the time to do it. And it just slowed me down mm-hmm. and realizing, even in email communications, I started having greetings in my emails rather than just like I four mean, o'clock, me ta- you know, rather yeah. than like, hi, how's it going? You know, <laughs> well, how are you today? Or, you know, just happy um, Halloween or something. You know sure. what I mean? Like sure. just some greeting and being in Europe helped me understand the importance of that.
2: Yeah. No, that's so great. Well, tell us about some of the other places you've traveled to.
1: Oh boy. I have traveled so much around the world. I started out, uh, it was part of my upbringing actually. as my dad uh, took us backpacking across Central America. Wow, really. Yeah, when we were, uh, I was eight, she was six. This was pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah, we were carrying yeah. everything in our backs. Yeah. It, it was uh, not an easy stint there. Yeah. And, uh, we've been to Europe, uh, Canada. I lived in Sudan, Africa for a summer when I was 12. Oh,
2: wow. oh were your parents aid workers? Or, no. or NGOs?
1: <laughs> no, my dad... Uh, my parents uh, got divorced when I was seven, so this was when I mean, we would switch off time yeah. with my, between my parents. In the That's summers, right. I'd often have uh with my dad, and he would want to travel. But, well, you know, it's interesting. He... he He was a journalist, uh, a freelance journalist, and then he did end up becoming an aid worker. He founded an organization called Grassroots International in Cambridge, uh, which he has since retired from. But uh, at that time, he was kind of exploring. My parents had me when they were very young, so they were still in the early phases of their life, And, and he was doing a lot of journalism then. And we got to go traveling around in these crazy exotic places. And he also did that on purpose to give us exposure.
2: Yeah, which is like great.
1: That, yeah. That's and then as an adult, I've, I was saying that uh, I really loved travel. It was my passion. And I saved up and took a leave of absence from one of my jobs for mm. four months. Wow. And I did a backpack around the world trip.
2: Oh, Fantastic.
1: And that was pretty much top to bottom of Europe, Scandinavia, all the way down to Greece, uh, to Egypt, then uh, over to Asia, Thailand, Singapore, Australia, and back to California. I think that was most of the stops. Yeah,
2: that's fantastic. Four months to do that. That's Mm -hmm. envious. Well done
1: yeah yeah you know i talk to people a lot about flexibility at work you know some people want to take time off to raise children some people take care of parents some people here in san diego just want to go surfing right but some others want to go off and do things you know and travel i think that's much more common today not then it was people thought i was insane and it it really (laughs) it, it i took a hit with my my job to do that, you know, lives. didn't yeah, get the raise that everyone else got that right. year because I had but missed time.
2: Yeah. No, no. it makes sense. Well, it, but then that says a lot about your value system and how that was meaningful enough for you to forego that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's also fascinating to me is just the juxtaposition of being in these corporate settings where there isn't a lot of communication. There are, you know, People six feet away from you, emailing you instead of turning around and chatting, but you're traipsing the world to experience interactions and, and seeking out uh, that 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 experience of commonality or, or bonding with people from other cultures. Uh, I think that, that's amazing. And what what I'm really trying to uh, unearth or discover is, um, you know, after these three jobs in Silicon Valley, you went to pursue your doctorate in psychology and so share with us about the decision there and and what prompted it.
1: It was not a decision to take lightly because I was very comfortable in my life as an engineer. I made yeah. good money, had you know a nice life, but I was just really bored. And, yeah. and I think it was it was sort of one of those age things, right? I was 28 years old and I said, okay, I could hit 30 and just sort of be schlepping away and bored mm-hmm. and kind of going nowhere. Or I could hit 30 and, uh, you know, with my pants on fire <laughs> and be doing something I love. Right. And, uh, that's when I, I thought, you know, I'd much rather be in that position in, in life, just going and, and making things happen. And, and, I gave up my job. It took a while because I did some exploration to make sure this was the field for me. Because if you've already spent so much time training for one, you don't want to just lightly jump into another and find out you don't like that either. Yeah. Uh, So I did some informational interviewing. I did some volunteering. I took some classes at night in psychology. I volunteered at a crisis hotline because I thought that maybe a lot of people were telling me you should be uh, a counselor. Hmm. And that was originally what I was thinking about. And so I did this this uh, six, six, 12 month uh, stint at a crisis hotline. And there was one night when somebody called in and they said, I'm gonna commit suicide. And then they hung up. And I was just oh, wow. reeling, I was like, what do i do i couldn't call back i didn't know you know it was all anonymous and i i didn't get any sleep that night i was so upset and i went back and i talked to somebody at the crisis hotline later and they said oh yeah that guy he does that all the time <laughs> i was like well at least that's good to know
2: <laughs> things i could but, have known before <laughs> right
1: but that's when I realized I I can't leave my work at work in this. I, it take you know some people oh, to be a good therapist or so, you know somebody who's dealing with really um, difficult issues.
2: Yeah, you really
1: compromise. need to be able to distance yourself. And that just ate me up. And I said no, I I don't want to work with people who are really in... in crisis situations and really dealing with life-threatening kind of mental illness, I need to be with what we call, quote, like the normal population. And so I found um, psychology and dealing with social psychology and organizations, like dealing with uh, industrial organizational psychology. Yep. And so, you know, I deal with some of the, the communication and I was actually just talking to somebody this week about how he's a therapist and he helps people with their emotions. I'm going, well, I help people with emotions too, but in a work context, you know, just on how you communicate and read the room, but it's a much lighter kind of way.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't, um, but but it's critical for the functioning of groups and then uh, work together. And when you think about. Uh, I think it's a bit skewed, but we tend to spend more time working than we do in our personal lives. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's part of the reason why the uh, problems can be a bit more severe or uh, <laughs> require more in-depth uh, uh, um, review or discussion on the personal side than they do on the work side. But it also goes to a lot of, we have a lot less invested in uh, uh, on the work side, where we you know we can change our situation if it becomes onerous, whereas right. not so but easy. Families,
1: your family, change your <laughs> yeah.
2: parents or your siblings or your children if they're the source of uh, mm-hmm. angst or, or discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I should add, frame that more as a question since you're the expert on the call, not me.
1: <laughs> ah, well you know, it is, it is interesting. Like you just said, it seemed that you do spend more time at work typically. And part of it is getting things done and being productive for the company. But part of it is also just having a good life while you're there working. And do you want to be on a team of people that's really dysfunctional and you're all competing against each other and stabbing each other in the back? Or do you want to have a life you know, where you're working with people who are getting along and collaborating and really building something great, you yeah. know, that you can get behind. Well, so, yeah.
2: And I'm so glad you said that. And one of the questions I wanted to build up to, um, and, um, uh, you, you post doc, you've done uh, some consulting, you were at Cisco for a bit. And then I, I just looking at the timeline, it looked like, um, uh, you had your daughter and, um, Took some time for that, which is a really important thing to do. But then you've done work in academia, and then you've also been, been consulting. Um, but to come back to my earlier point as a segue for what you just said, um, a natural question is, uh, in terms of, of those who are more successful in a technology setting, are, are it... Uh, is it the people who have the technical ability that allows them to be a superb design engineer uh, coming up with the best uh, product? Or is it the people who have more of the soft skills? And, and and is it also, I mean, imagine there's some variability in terms of how organizations value that.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it, I guess it depends in part on uh, if you're going to be an engineer or a coder or developer and just stay in that role mm. all the time versus if you're going to go into leadership. Okay. But there is research that shows that having the emotional intelligence can bring you up to the, the highest levels of achievement, no matter what role you're taking. Mm. Uh, you can do a lot as a designer or developer without a lot of emotional intelligence, but if you really want to get to the highest uh, you know, value for your For your job and your work, having that emotional intelligence will help uh, as a leader on the other hand, it's critical yeah. so if you're going to go and and you know as a team member, it's also very important and these days work is being done so much more in teams, and there's so much more customer empathy and uh, the empathy piece is is being able to understand where people are coming from and and their different perspectives and feelings come into that too yeah. so yeah it, it is very important and um, just to be able to work with people um, but it's funny how in technical organizations these skills are undervalued mm. and so, so. sadly they're underdeveloped uh-huh. and uh, they could people could be doing so much more if they developed them more and that's that's where I try to get in and, and help. Uh, because that you'd look at like, for example, the leadership failure rate in mm-hmm. tech companies versus non tech companies, it's 20% higher.
0: Wow,
1: and, amazing. you know, we're up to about 40% failure for our leadership. So that's like two out of five leaders that you, you know, you promote into leadership positions and wow. tech uh, fail. Amazing. yeah that's a lot and you know cost the company a lot of money to have a failure and not to mention the individual i mean for everybody involved it's a Mm lose-lose right you you (laughs) would much rather have somebody be successful in their job and perhaps even put some money into developing those skills that take them Mm -hmm. offline for a little while Uh, It's so much cheaper than having to deal with a a failed position and hiring somebody new. The morale of the whole team, etc. Fallout
2: is pretty costly. Yeah, Yeah. that makes complete sense. Um, Well, and but it keeps you uh, uh, busy. (laughs) Right? Gives you. Yeah. Well, if they
1: see the light, yes, it does. It does. The the, Uh, the
2: side of it. Uh, I'm curious, and and we will get back to your timeline in in, in just a moment, but. we also had on the show, um, uh, uh, Michelle Navarez, who's working with uh, Daniel Goldman and his son who have established a group uh, that focuses on emotional intelligence. Um, and so it's sort of putting the principles of his book into practice. Mm-hmm. And in our conversation, what came to light was that people use emotional intelligence in many different ways. And so how would you define it? I would love to hear Joni's. Ooh. Description of emotional intelligence. I mean, yeah, it is related to your work and what you've seen.
1: Yeah. My own definition of emotional intelligence well, it's the ability to perceive emotions and manage emotions. And in yourself be, or in yes, others? Yes. In both. In both. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think if Goldman's model is very, you know, a lot of them are very similar. I have like the four quadrants, right? right? But basically it's being able to understand emotions in yourself, know when you're feeling something, uh, know when your gut is telling you something, know when you're happy or or scared and being able to incorporate that data, I say for engineers, into your decision-making because that is a data point, right? Yes. But also be able to manage it so that when you're interacting with others, if you are uh, angry about something or, or concerned that you can then figure out a constructive way mm-hmm. to, to bring that up or not get defensive. And, uh, and then with others too, it's reading the room, as I said before, being able to see how others are reacting uh, to you, to the situation, And that's another data point, which can really help. Uh, It can help in decision-making. It can help in how you approach somebody. If somebody is feeling like they're saying yes, but their nonverbal cues are saying no, you realize, okay, maybe they aren't actually bought into this solution. We need to dig deeper rather than just take it at face value and say, oh, they said, yes, we're good. And then find out later that they're, they're taking steps behind your back to to make changes. Um, But motivating people, getting people excited about something, uh, being able to get people serious and focused when they need to be. And those are all really important skills to have. And so you asked for the definition, it incorporates all of that. So, you know, just with a few words, you know, perceiving and managing emotions in yourself and others.
2: That's great. Thank you for going through that. I appreciate that. Um, Joni, what was the draw to academia?
1: Oh, interesting question. Let's see. I had actually, when I went to graduate school, I went to become a communications consultant is what I understood it to be at the time. I've really called myself a leadership consultant at this point because that's mostly the people that I work with, but it's all largely about communications. And when I was in graduate school at Berkeley, it was very academic focused, right? They were training people to be academics. And mm-hmm. I got a, this is answering the question in the wrong way for a second. <laughs> I'm going to steer. And I, I just was seeing how, <laughs> how competitive and, uh, people, and aggressive people were toward each other in the academic world. And there, it was just, so scary. I said, i never want to be an academic. This looks horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd go to a meeting and and somebody'd be like shredding well, oh, that's you know, the, the research you just uh, presented would be good, except for the fact that it's completely wrong. And then they would go on and on. I'd be like, Wow, how could somebody speak like that to somebody else? Or anyway, I said, this well, so- is just not
2: if you so, ever get bored of consulting engineers, you could always do, deal with emotional intelligence in academia.
1: Oh, I do. I do. Tra- I've actually oh, taught okay. some courses over at UCSD to the faculty. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's it's good. Um, <laughs> and the services
2: um, are in high demand in many cases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: certainly. And, but, so I didn't want to do that. I thought, okay, I, I've confirmed that that I really do want to be a consultant, but then, I was working and this was a family, a life decision that really drove the decision to go into academia because uh, we decided at the time it, it was time to start a family. And we were living in San Francisco on Russian Hill. It was one of the best places I've ever lived, but it was right in the height of the dot com. And it was just insanely expensive and crowded and what we used to be able to do in an hour where they taking three hours, you know, mm-hmm. to get across town or across the bridge. And it's even gotten worse since yeah. then up there, but we, we were looking to have a place, you know, for a family, our little flat on the Russian Hill wasn't going to accommodate that. So we're looking to buy somewhere. And we found that, you know, just the, the pricing was so extraordinary. Uh, we wanted to move somewhere we could afford. And my husband being a lawyer said, we need to stay in California. I don't want to take the bar in another state <laughs> and have to do all that. Good. And his firm had an office in San Diego Okay. and they were recruiting him down. So I said, okay, we'll move down to San Diego. And there happened to be a, a program in San Diego that I'd always really been fascinated by. It was called Uh, CSPP California School of Professional Psychology and they were really the practitioner research practitioner model they were really teaching people how to be therapists if you're going to clinical or consultants and I thought this could be a really good fit for me Mm -hmm. and so I applied for the job you know I didn't know if I'd get it I hadn't been in academia I'd been taking anyways I got the job and it was a way for me to have a kid and have a lot more flexible schedule and uh, still be able to do what I want to do. I mean when I was at Cisco, I was working i mean li- literally like leaving the house at six in the morning, getting home at about eight o'clock at night. Yeah. I was traveling 80% of the time if I wasn't going yeah. down to uh, to San Jose yeah. and that just wasn't a lifestyle that I could afford to have. So it was really the family decision, you know, to, to go academia for a while. And CSPP was then merged right when I started. It's with Alliant International University now. It's still part of their, their program, but, um, I was there for a few years and then stayed on adjunct for a while when I just decided to do consulting only.
2: Okay. Got you. Well, and it's not only Alliance, but also you have been involved with National University and mm-hmm. University of San Diego. Yes.
1: I love to teach. I, I love to teach. And so I actually, I, I do a lot. In fact, the, the last time I taught a course was what, uh, not this past year, but the year before over at... Uh, UCSD, University of California San Diego, and that was for their undergraduates and their business school. I do a lot of executive education as well, but I love staying in touch with younger people and teaching them. Uh, I teach mostly in graduate programs in in psychology, but uh, sometimes undergraduate as well, and it, you know, just staying current and what's going on, and and doing something that I think can help make an impact for people in their lives and trying to be the best I can as, as a professor.
2: Yeah, that's great. And you also launched a blog in 2013, Lessons from the Workplace.
1: Yeah, that was actually uh, because of my book. I wrote the book Flying Without a Helicopter, Mm -hmm. how to prepare young people for work and life. And, and having the Lessons from the Workplace blog is giving lessons from those kind of things. And And that was just seeing actually being a parent at that time and a consultant and seeing how people at work, the leaders at work were really complaining about younger people coming in. We've all heard all the stereotypes and this and that and the generations and everything, but there was some of it that was real and, and just people weren't as prepared for work and being a parent and seeing how parenting had shifted so much and they were doing so much more for their kids. And protecting them so much more and saying now this is why when they get to work they're not advocating for themselves they're not taking responsibility or being able to take feedback because they've been so protected so I wrote that book as, a, as another passion project of mine, yeah.
2: Nice, nice. Well, and I, I represented to you that I would read it, and uh, I, I haven't had <laughs> a chance to yet, but <laughs> uh, it is on the list, and I'm very intrigued uh, to read it um, as a parent myself and uh, <laughs> to apply some of those rules. Um, and your, your daughter is now heading to college. Um, do you have other children? Or-
1: I have one, just one, yes. Yeah. So she's going... You-
2: UCSB I think
1: UCSB I keep calling it UCSD because I teach there so much and work there and she's like no no it's B mom Santa Barbara not San Diego I'm like okay yes
2: yes Uh,
1: hopefully hopefully she has her independence from the lessons I've taught but you know it's part of the book is saying you have to accept your imperfections as a parent too
2: oh yes well it's if we we whether we accept them or not, our children know them, <laughs> yes exactly. And so you're far better off just admitting your fallibility mm-hmm. and 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 just saying yes, i'm I'm imperfect, and it's still okay.
1: <laughs> I'll never forget when she was really young. This was around Halloween, and we were having dinner, and it was after dinner. And all of a sudden, my my husband got up and walked into the pantry. And he closed the door behind him. And I thought, this is weird. What's he doing in the pantry? (laughs) And he stayed in there for a few minutes. And I was like, okay. So then he comes out and it, I discovered that he was in there eating the Halloween candy that we were saving up for Halloween, but he didn't want to do it in front of her because, oh, we can't have the kid eating candy. And I thought, wow, how hypocritical. Not to say that I wasn't doing it too, right? But I was like, <laughs> wow. And it made me re-examine like, well, what are we doing here? You know, And uh, trying to pretend that we're something that we're not and being these perfect people and and telling her she has to be something that's impossible to be. And so that was kind of a one of those moments in life you're going, "Oh, okay, yeah." <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm glad you shared that with me. That's it's funny. Um but it's so true. Um uh, the art of parenting. Um so I'm, I'm glad that uh, you put that book out there. Um I'm tempted to ask, what do you prefer teaching or consulting? And, uh, but I'm not sure you you feel comfortable answering that. <laughs> oh,
1: no, no, I tell you, I love the hands-on. Mm. Uh, that's actually, I mean, I've done a lot of consulting over the years. I've done, you know, building uh, performance management, talent management uh, systems, and, and all sorts of stuff. I've done survey research and, you know, but I love being with people, interacting. And so in terms of the teaching, there's nothing worse than standing up and delivering a lecture right? I, I want to be engaged. I try to have the students engage with me. I try to set up practical uh, situations for them to, to get a real experience. You know, like I bring in little assessments for them to do a, during class and stuff. So that is, you know, I try to aim to doing some of the hands-on in the classroom to the, the best of my ability. And so the consulting is, is the work that I love to do is to work with individuals and, and help them. But I guess teaching and consulting in some ways have a big overlap.
2: True. Yeah. You would say, but no, I saw, I saw.
1: helping empower people to learn themselves rather than just me lecturing to them. Right.
2: Yeah. yeah that makes sense. And, and your consulting platform is flexible work solutions. Yes. So,
1: yes. So. That's the website. Yeah. Okay.
2: And, um, you know, if, if, there's a, an engineer listening to the episode. Um, what advice might you give, or, or um, what would you, what guidance would you offer if they have a desire to move into a leadership position or feel that call, but maybe they're worried about their their soft skills? What, what, mm-hmm. what guidance would you provide?
1: Well, I would say, yeah, to pay attention to that first of all, and some ways. That you can develop your skills would be to get a mentor at work, somebody you admire who does it well, and see if you can either work with them, uh, you know, meet with them, uh, attend meetings with them, but look for role models who do it well and learn the best practices. Uh, also, spend time uh, working on yourself, and I think part of it. The most important part, as i found for people getting into good leadership positions, is the self-awareness piece Mm -hmm. and understanding yourself. And sometimes you can do that on your own, but often it helps to work with somebody uh, to really be able to explore and uh, sort of pull yourself from the outside, looking down, looking in, and being able to realize where you have some vulnerabilities and be able to share those. The authenticity, I think that's really a, a big piece of, of being a leader.
2: Nice. Oh, that's really great. Um, Jenny, who's a, an ideal client for you?
1: The ideal client is a leader who's just been promoted or about to be promoted and who's a technical person in high tech uh, or biotech, life sciences, any of the technical fields, and has really been promoted because they're genius. They're an expert at what they do. And now they're going to be valued for something completely different, which is their people management. And usually these folks are struggling. They're used to being in control and feeling confident. And now they're not because they don't know this area, what to do. And uh, it's a bit scary and they need some help Uh, navigating and figuring out how to get there and how to build those skills. So those would be the ideal clients and people who really want to, I mean, you've got a lot of people who get shoved into a leadership position who don't want to be there. You know, it's, it's better. uh, My ideal client is somebody who's like, okay, I'm energized to, to learn this new way of being.
2: Gotcha. No, that's great. Thanks for, for sharing that. Um, want to backtrack a little bit. Uh, I noticed on your profile, this Summit Discovery Institute. Is that mm-hmm. is that an educational group or more like a think tank?
1: Well, a little bit of both. Yes, that's uh, uh, a nonprofit group that I helped found. Um, and that was the consultants who wanted to be able to do research and help give back, you know, in terms of, Um, educating others and putting together programs to do that yes
2: okay great Mm -hmm. Um, but you're no longer with them I think you
1: No. I yeah I just had to choose uh, over time what I could uh, be a part of and ultimately um, that's still going though it's a great group of people
2: nice yeah. well done it's great when you start something that continues to mm-hmm. flourish even when you're not there that's a sign of a good leader <laughs> Ah,
1: well. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that that really shifted in my career change was this feeling of doing things like being an engineer because i was supposed to mm. not because it was necessarily you know what i uh, what I wanted to do. I mean, I was flipping through the book of majors. Back then it was actually a book, not uh, online. online. <laughs> and, you know, I loved music. I, I really, if, if I could have uh, made uh, a salary, you know, a career out of being a musician, probably would have gone that direction but I chose something because it was the right thing to do it was the way to get the money. But also, cause I felt like it, this was something I was supposed to do. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for people who are in that mode going, Oh, but this is what I should be doing. Uh, think about, you know, there are a lot of creative ways to make a career and being stuck in something you don't like. And, and you're just slugging away every day. it it's, it's not going to be worth
2: it in the end. Wow, amazing. Uh, what uh instrument did you play? The flute, okay, still fun. do,
1: still do, yeah, but not right. as well as I used to back then. Oh,
2: uh, that's great. <laughs> so, that was really your passion. That's what you, mm-hmm.
1: wow. yeah, that that actually is what got me through high school, you know, being a musician as well and wow. having that out. The creative outlet you know adolescence is a hard time having it. something like that to to cr- express yourself i think is really important
2: no it's critical absolutely um well actually one more question that now has been triggered uh <laughs> favorite destination that you'd love to go to that you haven't been to yet
0: oh that i
1: haven't been to yet you know i've been uh wanting to go to iceland
2: for a long time. Yes, before it
1: became fashionable. I've been wanting to go there. (laughs) I have not yet done that. Yes. My go-to is Paris. That's almost like a second home for us. Yes. Oh, wow. But but Iceland would be very interesting.
2: Yeah. Uh, And I think I remember from your profile, you are French speaking. Yes. So that makes it easier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. Uh, Joni, thank you so much. Really, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Appreciate your insight, your thoughtfulness, and uh, your willingness to to share about these uh, decisions you've made in your life and uh, all that you've accomplished. It's been really great.
1: Well, thank you, Asim. It's been really interesting questions, too. You've got me thinking, I'm going to keep pondering after this podcast is over. So thanks for that.
2: Excellent. We'll get to do a little post, uh, I was almost said post-mortem, but that, that sounds macabre. I should. <laughs> uh, we'll call it an epilogue. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that sounds more positive.
0: Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.